Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, December the 27th, 2022. It is currently 3.01 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where the wind is blowing 100 miles per hour. I have seen a cow fly by my window, a car, a truck. I've seen, I mean, it is crazy outside how windy it is. I don't think you'll be picking up any weird sounds in the background, but if you do, that is what you're hearing. I don't know. It's just absolutely crazy windy here in West Texas today. It's warm. It's in the 60s. I don't think it'll get to 70 today. It may get close. Um, but it, it's, uh, I think tomorrow we get close to 70, but it, it's a nice warm day. Just the wind is blowing like a, just, it's absolutely crazy. So if you hear that wind in the background, understand what is going on, but in a roundabout way, it's about to get crazy windy right here. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, it's going to get windy because all you are is full of hot air and, and no, 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 no. It's going to get windy because we're about to just step into a an absolute storm of, I don't know what this is going to be. This is going to be, this. what we're about to discuss here fits so many different things we're trying to do on the podcast at all. In fact, this is one, this is one episode that I could probably place this and multiple different series that we're working on. So let me try to explain and get us all caught up. All right. Are you ready? All right. This episode is a part of the Bible study exercise podcast series. The Bible study, the Bible study exercise podcast series is designed to try to get you to actually study the Bible with us, not just listen, but to study. We give you homework. We give you assignments. There is curriculum. We try to get you involved in actual Bible study. And currently we're in the middle of a seven week study on the topic, on the theme of fear. I gave everyone the thematic method to work on. The people are working on that. I've given other assignments. There's, there's assi- There are assignments. There's homework. There's all of that going on. And hopefully people have been working on that and benefiting from it. In the process of this seven weeks of study on fear, we've been looking at very specific passages of scripture. Psalm 33. We looked at that Again, one of the most important parts of the entire study on fear was Psalm 33 because it really lays the foundation and the framework, and I think it was very important. Then we went to Romans 8, super important section of Scripture. Then we looked at 1 John 3, 1 John 4. That one I, I wasn't super happy with because there's just so much there, and I had to try to focus on fear, but, but you can go and listen and see what you think about that. Then, for this week, We turn to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew chapter 14, and in Matthew chapter 14, we read this, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Now, please, now listen to me carefully. Remember, this has everything to do with our study of fear, right? Oh, oh, I I forgot. I also gave you an assignment to look at Matthew chapter one and two and Luke one and two on the subject of fear. I almost forgot that. That was a a week long assignment as well. So Psalm 33, Romans 8, 1 John 3 and 4, Matthew one and two and Luke one and two. All of that about fear and just all the different elements, right fear, wrong fear, fearing the right thing, fearing the wrong thing. We've had so many interesting, very important discussions on the subject of fear. This week is Matthew chapter 14. 
Matthew chapter 14, and we, we, we will read this, right? Oh, mm-hmm. there's so much going on here. Okay, just, just stay with me. Matthew 14, verse 22. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. All right. It is windy outside. It is windy in this story. And it's about to get very windy here. And it's going to be contrary, blowing against us as we try to reason with all of this and think this through. All right. So, yes, a good illustration is building for me. All right. Here we go. Verse 25. And in the fourth watch. Now, yesterday we had one, and I refer to the listeners of the Bible study exercise podcast series as students. One of the students emailed me. And we talked and they had some things to say about the fourth watch. And they put forth kind of a hypothesis that there in the minds of some, the fourth watch was a significant time for possibly spirit activity, demonic activity, spirits, demons, things along that line. Because according to some within Jewish mythology, Jewish tradition, that at that fourth watch, the veil between the material world and the spiritual world was at its thinnest. And so spirits can, in a sense, cross over into the material world. And so that this would have been a very, how could we say it? Frightful time of the night or morning. It could be a very uh, nervous time. You could be very suspicious thinking you see things or hear things because this was really built in to that culture. And they put forth that this, kind of this theory that that this would explain what happens because here's what happens. Jesus is, uh, it's the fourth watch. Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. So the student put forth kind of the hypothesis that maybe that may explain everything right there. They think it's a spirit. Why do they think it's a spirit? It's the fourth watch. Now, they sent me an article. They gave uh, uh, page numbers for two other reference tools that seem to say this is true of the fourth watch. Other people emailed me and said, no, 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 no. It's not the fourth watch. It, It happened. It was supposed to be midnight. So some sources say midnight, which would be like midnight to what, 2 a.m., and then the fourth watch, I think, was 3 to 6 a.m., if I remember how it it worked out, depending on the the time that you went with, right, the the time frame you went with. I think there was a difference between the Jewish time and the Roman time. So you get into a lot of theories and speculation. Um, So all I know is it does seem to be, even though there's disagreement, was it midnight, was it the fourth watch, there seems to be agreement that at least within the Jewish culture at that time, somewhere starting at midnight and after was a time to be concerned or worried about spiritual activity and spirits or ghosts or demons or anything along those lines. So this may have explained the disciples. It's a spirit. This may have reflected their minds still being greatly influenced by the mythology the mysticism, the superstition of that time. 
I, I think it's, I think, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think it's something that we should look at. And, and, and we spent a little bit of time working on that. And I gave that, I uh, gave you some homework to do on that. And I gave you some homework to do on verse 22 as well. So, but we're going to, we're going to move past that today. All right. Verse 26, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway, Jesus spake unto them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Now, this fits in perfectly with our study on fear. All right, we could have a, that's where we really need to get to this week. Verse 28, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, one of our students who emailed us thought that, well, if they had this kind of concern or worry about spirits being very much active at this time of the night, morning, then was this, in a sense, Peter testing the spirit? Hey, if you're, if, if you're a spirit, tell me to come over, you know, to come to you because, well, if he comes over to them, I guess, then does he sink? I don't, I don't know exactly how the test is supposed to work. Well, if this is really Jesus, I'm going to get out of the boat and walk to him. If it's not Jesus, I'm going to drown. I, I don't know exactly how, you know, it, it's an interesting concept that maybe Peter here, I think possibly, I don't, it's it's hard to try to understand exactly what's going through Peter's mind here, but all of it is, makes for a fascinating, a fascinating kind of hypothesis for us to think about and to speculate on. So please continue working on it and please send me your thoughts as we, we work on that. So, and let me finish reading the rest of the story. So we know what happens. And uh, Jesus says unto him, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now here's Peter walking on the water. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning and and if I can read this and beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him and said uh, unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they, then they that were in the ship came and worshiped him saying, of a truth, thou art the son of God. All right. Fascinating passage of scripture. And my initial approach to this text was one. Now the student, the student who emailed us, they kind of took us in a slightly different direction. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Creates that whole hypothesis and how we understand the fourth watch. How do we understand the disciples saying it's a spirit? How do we understand Peter's actions and saying, hey, is it you? If it is, Tell me to get out of the boat. All of that is fascinating and interesting. But my initial approach was this. If you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've heard sermons on Matthew 14, you know what it almost immediately turns into. The whole story basically becomes less about Jesus and more about us. And it becomes an analogy, right? Becomes an analogy. See, Jesus sent them right? He sent them in, you know, into the storm because Jesus is omni, Jesus is omniscient. He obviously knew what was coming. So he sent them purposely into the storm. Sometimes God sends us directly into the storm. Why does he send us into the storm? This is typically how the sermons go to test our faith. And so he, but guess what? Even though he sent them into the storm, Jesus was praying for them. So God sends us into the storm because he knows what's going to happen, but he does it to test our faith, but he's praying for us. But when the time is appropriate, he will show up for us and to us in the midst of the storm. 
And if we'll put our eyes on him, then we can literally get out of the boat and walk upon the storm and be conquering over the storm. But if we take our eyes off Jesus, we will sink. But even if we sink, if we say, Lord, save me, he will save me. And then he'll put us back in the boat and everything will be good. But it goes something along those lines, right? In other words, even though it's a historical narrative, it quickly becomes just kind of symbolic of, of we are the disciples and the boat represents this and the, and the wind and the storm represents this and the water represents this. And it really becomes about us. And I challenged that a little bit to say, is that a correct way to handle the text? And I really wanted everyone thinking and kind of struggling with that. Like, is that a, is that a accurate way to interpret the, the text? And, and I, I raised some questions about it. We haven't had much time to dig into it, and we will. But here's what happened. I promised at the very beginning of this week that at some point I was going to grab an app and just choose the most random sermon I could on Matthew 14 to see how they would interpret the text. So at about 3 a.m., I'm like, hmm, I'm just going to start looking for that random sermon. So I did a search for Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Boom. The very first sermon that pops up. I hit play just to kind of get an idea. I start listening. I make it about four to six minutes in and I stop and I'm like, oh, wow. What do I do with this? Because it supposedly is about Matthew 14. But it has so much to do also with our ongoing discussion about law and gospel. If you've been listening to that series, we've had some serious conversations about how to understand justification versus sanctification, how to understand our salvation by imputed righteousness, not infused righteousness. So many major important issues related to soteriology. So such an important study. And around about way, what I started listening to last night is it, it never really got to Matthew 14. It was dealing with these other issues. So a part of me was like, I should review this for our series on understanding law and gospel. But then I looked again just to make sure. In fact, I'm going to open up the app where I found it. I found this on the Sermons 2.0 app. And I looked at it and it's called Getting Power from God. Whoa, getting power from God? And then I looked at the text. Matthew 14 22 to 36. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are they arguing that Matthew 14, 22 to 36 somehow teaches you and I how we can obtain power from God? Is that the purpose of this text? And I was like, whoa, this, this, this could, this could go to, this could be a part of that, the under understanding law and gospel series. However, it could be a part of our series on fear because we're studying Matthew 14. Or do I make this a a separate series in and of itself? Like, how do we get power from God? There are so many different things I could do with this, but I'm going to put it right here uh, in the Bible study exercise because we're studying Matthew 14. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to begin a sermon review. Now, this sermon is an hour and 17 minutes long, ladies and gentlemen. Clearly, we will not be able to review this in one part. We will not be able to review this in two parts. We will not be able to review this in three parts. It probably will require four parts, maybe even five parts to review this. 
So this is going to be a, a, a big commitment of my time and a big commitment of your time if you choose to be with us. But I, this is what I want you to do. I want you to listen to how a preacher takes Matthew 14, 22 to 36 and how they use it for their purpose. And this, this is something we always have to ask ourselves. This, this is such an important, I mean, this is a part of the Bible study exercise. And one of the things I try to do in this series is I try to not only get you to study the Bible, I'm constantly trying to throw at you tips about Bible study, about hermeneutics to help you so that you can become the best Bible student on your own, right? That's the real goal, because un unless you are equipped out to study the Bible, then you're at the mercy of others, and when you're at the mercy of others, you can be manipulated and deceived. You got to know how to study the text for yourself. But here's a question we always have to ask ourselves. Are we guilty, all of us, including me behind this microphone, of using the text, taking a text and using it for our own purpose, for our own preconceived idea, when the text has nothing to do with that concept, with that idea, with that in any way, shape, or form. So many times Christians, they're either looking for something, needing something, feeling something, wanting something, and they go to the scripture and they make it work. They make it fit. They use it for their own agenda. Remember, when you study the Bible, the only agenda you should have, and this is very important, you should never study the Bible when your agenda is to prove someone else wrong. I don't think that's, a, no, I think that's wrong because you're, you're already made up your mind that you're right. And now you're try, you're having this debate with someone. So you go find scripture that you think proves your point, And all you're trying to do is find scripture that you think proves your point. And so in many cases, you're using it for your own agenda. The only agenda you should have when you study the text of scripture is to understand the text of scripture without any regards to your emotions, your feelings, your needs, or your wants, your desires. You are irrelevant. The text is outside of you. In many cases, the text has nothing to say about you or to you. It has a specific other purpose. It's the words are specifically for a certain people at a certain time. It's a promise for a specific people at a specific time. It's not a promise for you. And so if you go, you, whenever you look at the text, you've got, if you can't go with an agenda, you're, I guess the only agenda you can have is what does the text say by the words that are used? And it doesn't matter if that makes you feel good, makes you feel bad, whether you find it interesting, whether you don't find it interesting. And the same is true for pastors. We don't go to the text of scripture to find a sermon, if you're looking to the scripture to find a sermon, then you're using the scripture for your agenda. Don't go to the text to find a sermon. Go to the text to figure out what it says. And then your sermon should not be a quote unquote, a sermon where you're just trying to preach three points. And basically you create a speech that has a great introduction, a good conclusion and three points. And no, that's all about template and structure and presentation. It should be about, hey guys, open up your Bibles. Let's figure this out today. So, so I, I just feel that in a roundabout way, this person is using Matthew 14 for an agenda, and I'm not a big fan of that. Now, I may pro be proven to be wrong. Now, just remember, this is how I do Bible study. What, this is how I do sermon reviews for the Bible study exercise podcast series or any of the other podcast series. I don't listen to them in advance 
The only reason I started listening to this at around 3 a.m. is I wanted to get an idea. Is this really about Matthew 14? I never got that far, but immediately when I realized what he was doing and the direction he was going, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. If he actually gets to Matthew 14, this is going to be, oh, this is going to be interesting. So we're going to use it and we're going to take, I don't care how many episodes to get us there, but that, that gets us all on the same page. Matthew 14 is what we've been looking at. So we're going to review this sermon. Now, here's what I can tell you. If you have small children around, you may want to put on headphones, at least for the beginning of this, because it gets pretty explicit in some of the issues that he's dealing with. And you may not want to have to try to explain some of these issues. All right. Um, but it's it's very blunt and very frank, but it's dealing with some some very real issues. And I think sometimes it's good to hear the church will, being willing to deal with very real issues. My concern is that it sounds like that they feel the, the solution to these very real issues is found in Matthew 14. And I'm not convinced that that's what that has. I, I, oh, I don't know where this is going. All right. But it's called getting power from God. So we're right there just makes me nervous. Your text is Matthew 14. So you're going to take Matthew 14, the story that we just read, and turn it into a prescription and how I can obtain power from God to overcome, I guess, anything. Oh, boy. This is, a, I think, first and foremost, it's a narrative that's descriptive before it's prescriptive. And I think we have to be very careful what we do with these kinds of text. So this has so many, this is connected to so many things that I had to spend 21 minutes trying to explain all of this. But are you ready? Now, here's the goal. We're going to try to go about 30 minutes into the review for, well, we may go a little less. I'm going to try to find a good stopping point. So I'm going to try to let him work through all of his introductory comments. And then right when he transitions from introduction into his first main point, stop there. Then the next review will deal with this first main point, And then we may break it down. I'm assuming he has three points because it doesn't all pastors. Okay. I'm assuming that's the direction he goes, but we will kind of follow along that way. All right. I hope, I, man, I know that was a lot of information to cover, as, and I covered it as fast as I could, but I hope you're ready. Our, our, we are in the Bible Study Exercise podcast series. Matthew 14 is the text for this week. We've looked at the fourth watch a little bit, trying to understand that. We've, I've brought up hermeneutical issues and how we should interpret this. And one of the things I said we would do this week is review sermons. Clearly, we're going to review one, and I hope that this proves to be challenging to our understanding of biblical hermeneutics, a challenge to how we understand what biblical preaching is, and hopefully this will get us thinking even more about the text for this week, which is Matthew chapter 14. Here we go. Buckle in. It's about to get bumpy. It's about to get extremely windy. It's about to get extremely interesting. Here we go. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the instruction you've gave us in your word about freedom from sin and how to um, fight the battle that we're engaged in. We know that you um, promised to sanctify us, and yet that sanctification process does not finish in this life. 
I know, just already in this prayer, just kind of, and this is this is really going to go beyond our discussion of Matthew 14. You see why this is going to be connected to so many things? Watch this kind of weird, again, I call it Christian doublespeak. We're free from sin. We're free, but we're not really free because we're being sanctified. But the sanctification process is not done. So if the sanctification process isn't done until we get to glorification, then we're not really free from sin because that would indicate that we're still going to sin. So how can in one hand we say we're free from sin unless you mean we're free from sin positionally, but we're not free from sin practically? So are we free or are we not free? Or like, how does this work? So let, let me back that. This is just his opening prayer, but immediately I'm just like, wait a minute, we're free, but we're not sanctified. So are we, fr- what way are we free? How are we free? Because I hear Christians all the time, we're free from the power of sin but we will still sin. Am I free or am I not free? Okay, can you explain? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the instruction you gave us in your word about freedom from sin and how to um, fight the battle that we're engaged in. We know that you um, promised to sanctify us and yet that sanctification process does not finish in this life and we groan under the weight of our own sin especially certain sins Lord that really really trip us up and yet you've given us um, guidance on how to handle that and so I pray Father I pray for each person here I assume Lord that people are here because they're either stuck in an enslaving sin or they are probably close to someone who is. Maybe they just want training, but most likely they know someone, a family member, a friend. And Lord, these, these, these enslaving sins are just so devastating to us. They cause so much pain. They destroy families. They, they bring us to despair. They cause us to doubt your word sometimes, Lord, because... We, we, we seem to like try everything and nothing works. And I think that there are some here, no doubt, who have really have tried everything. They've, they've been wrestling with this for years and years and years and everything they've tried so far hasn't really helped. And, and this class could be another one of those things that just didn't help. It will be, unless you... Grant us favor, Lord, unless you, by your Spirit, move in us and grant sanctifying power, grace that will transform us. We look to you alone, Lord. There's no methods that can do this work. So please, answer this prayer. Grant this request because we ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. This is a Christian prayer that to me encapsulates all of the confusion I have with the entire world of Christianity. We're free. Thank you, Lord, for our freedom from sin. We're being sanctified, but we're not completely sanctified. However, we can be in enslaving sins. However, Lord, if you will, grant us the power so that we can overcome this. So, so, I gotta, so I'm free, but I'm not free. 
I'm being sanctified, but it's not going to be complete. But I can be in an enslaving sin, but dun, 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 God has power just waiting on me. And if he will grant me that power, dun, 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 I can be overcome the enslaving sin. So am I free or not free? Do I have power? And if I have power, how much power do I have? Do I have the power to be sinless? Well, no, you don't have the power to be sinless. So there's a limit to the power, but the power is good enough to get me out of an enslaving sin. So if the power is there to get me out of the enslaving sin, then why are any Christians enslaved in any sin? Because we reject the power? Well, if we reject the power, what, why wouldn't the power overcome our feelings of wanting to reject it so that now it turns my rejection into acceptance? Like, I, like it just leads to these never, it's like a circle. It's like you're a hamster on a, on a wheel just going around and around and around and around and around. And we say all of these words. You're free from sin. Well, you're not really free from sin. There's power. Well, there's limited power. You can do it. Well, you can't do it perfectly. So can I, can't I, power, freedom, no freedom, no power, which is it? And it's just, and, and Christians just speak these things and you're never supposed to raise your hand. You're never supposed to have a question. You're just supposed to go, yes, and you and never see the never-ending contradictions in all of this, all right? So clearly, this is what we're getting. This sermon comes from a class dealing with, it sounds like, enslaving sins. And supposedly, Matthew 14 is the text to help us how to overcome enslaving sins. I am baffled by how you get Matthew 14 to this. I don't know, but we're going to, this, I, I can't wait to see where this goes. Okay. People who have uh, never been in bondage to a particular enslaving sin don't get it. They don't understand what it's like. Um, they think it's just like any other temptation that you face. You just, they think it's just a matter of uh, you're enticed by a temptation, you cave in, end of story. That's just all there is to it, just like anything else. And so those people are mystified as to why you would keep doing this thing that's causing so much trouble. Okay, let's stop right here. All right. Clearly, this is built on a premise that there are enslaving sins and there's just sin. And that those people who've never been enslaved in a specific sin can't understand those who are enslaved in a sin because they're like, wait, it's just like any temptation. You get tempted, you fall, you just stop doing it. You just stop doing it. But let me make this abundantly clear. This is what I don't understand in the Christian way of thinking. I don't understand the Christian way of thinking. Let me make this abundantly clear. Now, I know some people are going to go, <gasps> they're going to gasp, and they're going to be like, they're not going to understand it. They're going to be like, how dare you say that? But I'm going to say it. I want you to listen to me, right? Every single Christian is a slave to sin practically. We've been set, set free perfectly positionally because positionally, I'm covered in the obedience of Christ. I'm covered in his perfect righteousness. It's been imputed to me. I am perfect. I'm holy. I am free. I am godly. All my sins are gone. Everything is perfect positionally. Practically, I am still a sinner. Now, I know Christians will run around and quote, no, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. But if you think that that applies to anyone practically, you are, del you are delusional and you are deceived. 
And how do I know this? As long as either you have to believe in the complete eradication of the old man, that the old nature is completely eradicated, and now there's no more sinful nature in any Christian, and if you believe that, then we should be perfect. But if you believe the old nature is still there, that we're still sinners, that we still have a sinful heart, if you believe that, which I believe you have to, because it's the only thing that explains sin and the life of believers for 2,000 years, everywhere you turn, your life, my life, everyone's life, we still have a sinful nature. So if we still have a sinful nature, this is very important, then every Christian has to see themselves as a slave to sin. Now, the only way you can email me and tell me you're not a slave to sin is to show me, is to, is to declare to me in the email that you're perfect and you no longer sin. Because if you tell me that you're not a slave to sin, but you can't be perfect, that is an absolute illogical contradiction. That's a logical fallacy. Because if you have been set free practically and you're no longer a slave to sin practically, then that means you can stop sinning and be sinless. And you say, no, 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 I can't be sinless, but I'm not a slave. Well, if you're not a slave, you're free. And you can't tell me that I'm free, but I can't be perfect because that means there's a limit to my freedom. Hey, I'm free from sin, but I'm still going to sin. I still have a sinful nature. I'm still going to have wrong thoughts. I'm still going to have wrong desires. Uh, Then you're not free unless freedom in the minds of a Christian is not really free. I mean, are Christians the kind of people who puts a dog in a cage and says, hey, now you're free. You can't go anywhere, but you're free, (laughs) right? No, that's not freedom. Okay, that's not freedom. I'm not free if I'm going to continue to sin and then claim that I'm free from it. So am I free or am I not free? So when it says Christians can't understand people who are in bondage to sin, that, that scares me to death because every Christian should be able to understand it. Whatever, when you look at someone like, man, I don't know why they keep committing that sin over and over and over. I don't understand why they're in bondage to sin because you're in bondage to sin. Maybe not that sin, maybe not a specific sin, but you're clearly in bondage to sin in general because you sin all the time. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. If you don't do that, that's a sin. Do you ever do that? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do that, that's a sin. Do you ever do that even anywhere close to perfectly? No. Be ye holy as God is holy. That is a command. Do you ever do that? No. Be ye perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. Do you ever do that? No. Meaning you're continually in sin. Therefore, you're still in bondage to it. You may not be in, you may not be able to understand their bondage because you don't understand their sin, but you should be able to understand the concept of bondage because we're all in bondage to sin to some way, shape, or form. But most Christians reject that idea. While they continue to sin. Hey, I'm not in bondage to sin, but I keep sinning. Okay, all right, that that makes absolutely no sense. But all right, so so I, I, I do agree that a lot of Christians don't get it. And a lot of Christians don't understand someone who's struggling with a, a specific sin or in bondage to it, and they're enslaved to it. A lot of Christians don't understand it. And we don't understand it because it's not our sin. But if we're halfway honest with ourselves, you'd be like, man, I don't understand your sin, but I got my own I'm dealing with. And consternation in your life. Why not just quit? I mean, if you were really serious about it, you'd quit. People that think that way fail to understand the concept of enslavement. Titus 2.3 says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. And the word translated addicted there 
is the word, uh, it's, it's a word that comes from the normal Greek word for slave, doulos. Uh, it means to be enslaved, to be in bondage, not free. That's what the word means. Now, this is important. And your soteriology and your theology, do you believe a Christian can be enslaved to a specific sin and still be saved? Now, my argument is we're already enslaved to sin, whether it's that one, whether it's a specific sin like being enslaved to wine or alcohol, we're all enslaved to sin to some way, shape, or form. So if we can all be enslaved to sin in one way, then clearly we as a Christian can be enslaved to a specific sin and still be saved because my salvation is not dependent on whether I'm enslaved to a sin or not enslaved to a sin because my salvation is dependent upon an imputed righteousness and an imputed righteousness does not change whether I'm enslaved to a sin because it's imputed. Now, if I believe I'm saved by an infused righteousness, which is Roman Catholicism, then I could argue, no, you can't be enslaved to it because you've been infused with the righteousness of God and therefore that should be different. But he seems to be making an argument that the text, and I'm going to back that up just a little bit. I'm going to back that up just a little bit. Here we go, so that we can hear that again. Here we go. As to why you would keep doing this thing that's causing so much trouble and consternation in your life. Why not just quit? I mean, if you were really serious about it, you'd quit. People that think that way fail to understand the concept of enslavement. Titus 2.3 says, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. And the word translated addicted there is the word, uh, it's, it's a word that comes from the... Now let's stop right here. Now the King James says in Titus 2.3, not given to much wine not given to much wine. I'm going to open up the Blue Letter Bible app because he's saying it's the word not to not be enslaved to. All right, now here we go. I'm going to go to Titus 2, 3. All right, Titus 2, 3. Um, all I have here, okay, given. Okay, it's given, not given. It is this Greek word. Strong's G, 1402, Dulao, Dulao. Dulao, Dulao. And literally it means, Dulao means to enslave, literally or figuratively, bring in to be under bondage. Now that seems very interesting that in Titus 2, listen, verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be uh, in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, not given to much wine, not, not being enslaved to wine. Now, that seems to indicate that there is a grave possibility that even a believer, even an, a, a, a godly woman in the church could be given over to... Again, the Greek word is Strong's G fourteen oh two Dulao 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 Dulao. And again, it literally means uh, to bring in, to be under bondage, to to become a servant. 
So he, so Paul is telling Titus to, hey, listen, teach the sound doctrine. Here's what you instruct the aged men. This would be telling people in the church and telling the women in the church that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, and don't become enslaved, don't become a servant, don't become in bondage to wine, seemingly to indicate that it would be possible for a believer to find themselves enslaved to it. Now that 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 if, if if as long as we say that there's a possibility that you've got to work your theology and your soteriology around it, because some would say, no, 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 no. They're enslaved to it. They're an alcoholic. They're lost. They can't be saved. But this seems to indicate that these women, they hey, don't become enslaved to it. Don't become don't become a servant of it. Now, why would there be a warning of it? If there wasn't a possibility of it, to me, the possi- the warning is clearly, hey, there's a possibility if you're not careful, you'll be, become a slave. You'll become enslaved to wine. You'll basically become an alcoholic. Don't, lo- don't let that happen. In other words, we need to be on the lookout for that. Why? Because it's possible that even for a believer to become enslaved to a sin, it, but still be a believer, Some theology was saying, absolutely not. No, no, no. Can't be saved and do that. Can't be saved and do that. Can't be saved and do that. Well, I think it's very likely considering we're saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness, and um, because we still maintain a sinful nature. Normal Greek word for slave. Doulos. Uh, it means to be enslaved, to be in bondage, not free. That's what the word means. Proverbs 5.22 says, The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him, trap him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He's tied up. Ecclesiastes 7.26, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. A snare, a trap, imprisoned, tied up chains, handcuffed, all of this terminology points to a situation that where you, it's, you can't just say, oh, I think I'll just walk away into freedom. It's more than that. It's more than that. Now, if you're a Christian, you've been set free in Christ, right? Freedom from... <laughs> okay. All right. So, so this is a situation where you can be enslaved, but if you're a Christian, you've been set free. Okay, wait a minute. So I can be enslaved, but I've been set free. Is this more of that famous Christian doublespeak? Let's see how they explain this. All right. So you've been set free. From sin, isn't that true? We have freedom in Christ from sin. We have freedom from Christ. We have freedom from Christ from sin. Or a freedom in Christ from sin. Now, again, what do you mean by that? If I have freedom in Christ from sin, is he saying I have freedom in Christ from sin positionally or is he saying practically? And if he's saying practically and if I'm truly free, that means I should never sin again because I've been completely set free. Now, some people say, well, you're free, but we never take advantage of the freedom. So you're saying that literally I'm completely free. So I could be sinless if I so desire. So just, just nobody has ever wanted to be. No one, no one has ever wanted to be. 
So like, so am I free or am I not free? What's the deal with Christians and can't ever just seem to realize we say one thing and then we say the opposite. You're free, but you're not free. You're free, but you're kind of free. You're power, but you don't have power. Let's, let's see if they explain it and in any way, shape or form this supposed freedom. Christian, you've been set free in Christ, right? Freedom from sin, isn't that true? We have freedom in Christ from sin. So when you're enslaved, and yet Scripture talks about Christians being enslaved to sin. So when you're enslaved to a particular sin as a Christian, it's a voluntary enslavement. Okay, so if we're enslaved to sin, it's voluntary enslavement. That we voluntarily enslave ourselves, we don't have to be. Now, let's take this to its logical conclusion. Then by, by a logical conclusion, if we follow this to its logical end, then what they are saying, even though they're not explicitly trying to say this, but they are clearly explicitly implying this, then all Christians can be perfect because any sin that we get in bondage to or can continue to commit, we're just choosing to do so. We're volunteering for that. Now, that would have to mean that the old man has been completely eradicated and that I'm completely set free from sin and therefore I can be perfect and any lack of perfection is simply my own voluntarily choosing not to be perfect. Because if you say I can't be perfect and you say that I'm going to continue to sin, then clearly I'm not set free and clearly I'm enslaved to sin because I'm going to continue to sin and clearly no matter what I volunteer for or don't volunteer for, I am doomed to keep sinning. So which is it? Now, I know we're still going, what does this have to do with Matthew 14? This sounds more like the, the, the series on understanding law and gospel. I know. I'm still fascinated in how Matthew 14 is going to fix this, but I am just baffled by this double speak. You're free, but you can be enslaved. But if you're enslaved, it's voluntarily. It's, it's a voluntary thing that you've done. So, logical conclusion, all Christians should be able to stop sinning because if we don't stop sinning, it's simply because it's a voluntary action that we are committing because we have been set free. But if you come and say, but he's already said earlier in the prayer that sanctification is never going to be done. So, wait a minute. So, if sanctification is never going to be done, then you've already guaranteed that we're going to continue to sin. But at the same time, you've seemed to imply that we're completely set free from sin practically. And so any sin that we continue to commit, we're doing so voluntarily. But if we're doing so voluntarily, then does that mean we're completely set free and we can actually be perfect? So can I be perfect or can I not be perfect? Can I be sinless? Can I, am I going to continue to sin? Could someone within the Christian world stop with all the double speak and go, we've got to figure this out. Now I understand it's convoluted and it's confusing, I am, for, I am more, I, I'm a hundred percent willing to acknowledge the difficulty. What frustrates me is the ignoring of the difficulty, saying things without ever going, wait a minute, what am I claiming here? What am I claiming here? Am I, am I claiming, it's like, if I take that claim and take it to its logical conclusion, am I saying that we're sinless? Well, I know we're not sinless. Okay. Am I saying that we can stop sinning completely? No, I'm not saying we can stop sinning completely. Well, then we're still in bondage. Well, I mean, we're in bondage, but not really in bondage. Like, you've got to articulate it in a way that makes some kind of sense. We're not like unbelievers. It's a voluntary enslavement, but it's a real enslavement nonetheless. 
You really are trapped. Second Peter, uh, uh, in Second Peter, it says a man is a slave to whatever mastered him. Second Peter two. Um, you give yourself over to something, and and you become enslaved by it. So, so you you so in other words, you're free from sin, but you could give yourself over to a sin and then become enslaved by that sin. But obviously, we still have a sinful nature, and obviously, we're going to continue to sin, and we can never stop sinning. So if I can never stop sinning, it, aren't I already a slave to sin in that sense? I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, someone just said it's, volu- it's volunteering, but you're really trapped. You're really trapped, but it's voluntary. Well, if it's voluntarily, if, if, it's, if I'm voluntarily sinning, then I'm not trapped because I can voluntarily not be like, if I volunteered for it, can I not unvolunteer for it? Hey, I'm going to volunteer to help out on Saturday. Hey, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not going to help out on Saturday. Like, how do I become entrapped by something I volunteered for? So it's like you volunteered for this, but now you're trapped. I volunteered, but I can't get out of it. I don't, I'm so just, I don't understand. It's, it, it's, we're completely free as a Christian. So we volunteer for it and then we're entrapped by it. Well, if I'm entrapped by it, why can't I just now voluntarily remove myself from said trap? So it's a real enslavement. Um, and, and many of you are here because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you know you're enslaved because you've tried to stop and didn't succeed, right? You've tried. Now, wait a minute. It's voluntary. It's something you volunteer for, but you tried to stop, but you couldn't. <laughs> Why couldn't you? So no, does the, does the time, does the, the period of being a volunteer only, it's, it's a limited time. Like you, you can only, vo- you volunteer at the beginning, but once you get in it, you cannot volunteer to get out. And why can't I, like, I, I'm trying to get out, but I can't. Why can't I? That would seem to indicate I don't want to. If I'm clearly free, then I can walk away any time. And if I don't walk away any time, then clearly I'm not free. I mean, it would be like me saying, hey, look, look, you volunteer. This, this is basically how this would work. Someone would come to me and go, hey, you're committing sin. Okay. But I want you to know that you're free in Christ. So you don't have to commit this sin. So every time you commit sin, you're volunteering to do so. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so, but I want to stop. Okay. Well, then if you want to stop, it's simple. Just volunteer to stop and you can stop. But I keep trying and it doesn't work. Well, then the only logical conclusion would be, well, you don't really want to stop. Because if you really wanted to stop, you would just volunteer to stop because you're free. All right. Okay, I can't, maybe someone just said it's, it's like if you volunteer to ride a ski lift, you're stuck on it once you hop on. I, I guess, I, I, I mean, are you stuck? I mean, technically, couldn't you lift the, the bar and jump off? I mean, couldn't you? I mean, are you really trapped on a ski lift? I mean, I don't know. Are you really trapped on a ski lift? I mean, couldn't you unbuckle or whatever mechanism holds you in place? I mean, I know it would be devastating probably to jump off, okay, right? I, I don't know. Tried to change your behavior, and it didn't work. You, you, you've tried to get out of the clutches of this thing, and it failed. Um, 
and, and this, this particular thing in your life might be causing all kinds of harm, costing you a lot of money, harming you physically, fouling up relationships, costing you joy, hope, um, uh, misery, heartache, guilt, self-loathing. Just remember, he's getting ready to get into some very explicit examples of bondage or slavery to sin. So if you have children, you may want to have headphones on. Try everything you can imagine to, to, to stop and, and you just you just go right back to it like a dog returning to his vomit. And you just like pulling your hair out, you know, like. See, that doesn't sound like someone who volunteered for something. Hey, you volunteered for this, so your sin is volunt- it's a voluntarily it's a voluntary type situation that that you you put yourself in it. But once you put yourself in it, now he's seemingly described it. No matter how hard you try, you can't get out. You just keep going. You you try and you try this and you try that and you keep going back and you keep going back. That sounds like at some point the volun- the voluntarily na- the volunteer nature of it has now disappeared. Why why do I keep what is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this thing that I hate so much in my life? And it causes me so much trouble, I keep doing it. I mean, there might be times you find when you're really hooked, you find yourself doing it even if you don't really want to. It doesn't even bring you any pleasure and you're doing it. You're sitting there putting food into your mouth that doesn't even taste good. And, and you're not even hungry. And it's not even satisfying in it. You're doing it. You're just still eating. You're sitting in front of a computer screen for hours until your neck is sore looking at pornography. You can't, you, you, you can't stop. You're sick of it, and you can't stop. People engage in, in, in masturbation until it's, until it's painful, and they keep going. Buying things you know you don't need. You, you know it's going to cause a conflict in your marriage. You know it's going to put you in debt. You just buy it anyway. And and these are these are different from the regular temptations of life. They're they're, they're it's enslavement. All right, so it's enslavement. So I got to make sure I understand this. All right, so I got I got to try to go with everything he has said. I'm free. I'm free, but I can be enslaved. But my enslavement is a voluntarily a voluntary thing. It's not. It's, I didn't, I, I'm not forced into it. I volunteered for it. So it's a voluntary enslavement. However, you can't get yourself out and you will sit there and literally do things until you're in physical pain and you're no longer even happy, but you cannot stop. But it's, volun- it's voluntary. So, but, 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 as he said in his prayer, God can give you power to overcome it. Or at least he insinuated that. Pray, Lord, give us your basically sanctifying power. So I'm free. And because I'm so free, any enslavement and sin is purely a voluntary thing. But once I volunteer for it, I can become enslaved by it. And no matter how much I try, I can't get out of it. But supposedly power is there to help me get out of it. Even so at some point it stops being voluntary and now I'm trapped, but then God will come up with extra power to get me out of it. Even though supposedly I've already been set free from it. So I'm free. I volunteer but I'm enslaved. But there is power, I guess, that's readily available to get you out of it because obviously all of your attempts to get out of it may not prove to be beneficial or satisfactory. Okay, 
Let, let's see where this – I still don't know how Matthew 14 shows up in all of this. It really is enslavement. But on the other hand, it's not total enslavement. It's not absolute enslavement. People in the world will take this enslavement idea and go to the, to the extremes of saying it's, it's total in, lifetime enslavement. If you go to AA or any of the 12-step groups, including the Christianized version, which is uh, Celebrate Recovery, the very first principle uh, in the 12 steps, the first, first step is admit you are totally powerless over your addiction. Totally powerless. Um, they say it's a disease you will have until you die. And you'll never get, you can be an alcoholic, you can go 20 years without taking a sip, and you're still just as much an alcoholic as any other time. You can never break free. Um, best you can hope for is to just mitigate the behavior to some degree to where it doesn't foul up your life. Okay, now he doesn't obviously like that idea that you're powerless and yet you're always going to be enslaved to it. He's like, absolutely, you can mitigate it. You can, you can stop, you can maybe, you can try to hold back, but you're always going to be enslaved to it. He does not like that idea in any way, shape, or form. Now, here's the thing. He's going to take this concept, and it sounds like what he's going to do, he's going to reduce, reduce this to specific sins. But just speak of sin in general. Is it not true that we will always be enslaved to sin until the point we die? Because listen, we cannot stop sinning. We can never be perfect. And as long as I acknowledge that I cannot stop sinning and I can never be perfect, then clearly I'm enslaved to it, right? I mean, obviously there is a level where I am powerless because I cannot get to perfection. I cannot get to sinlessness. So there is a level that I am helpless and I'm hopeless. I'm going to continue to sin. And he seems to want to take this idea. It's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now he's going to reduce this to specific sins, but he's not going to address the, the elephant in the room. Well, wait a minute. You're going to say that I don't have to be enslaved to sin A, but wait a minute. Am, am I not still uh, enslaved to sin in a general way? Am I or aren't I enslaved to sin in general? Like, that's really what I want him to focus on. Am I a slave to sin in general? No, you're not. So I can stop sinning? No, you can't. Well, then I'm enslaved to it. So that's the first question. But he doesn't like these other programs that says, admit that you're powerless, admit that you're enslaved. He doesn't like that because he's going to quote a scripture that he believes proves that we're not enslaved to them. Here we go. The problem with that is that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he talked about all kinds of slaving, enslaving sins, sexual sins and <clears throat> drunkenness and all these, these enslaving sins. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11 said, and that is what some of you were. All right, here we go. The famous 1 Corinthians 6.11 passage. Now, we've already covered this in our study and understanding law and gospel. And the way preachers preach this passage is absolutely dumbfounding to me. All right, here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Hey, if you're unrighteous, you're not going to get into heaven. All right, what do we mean by unrighteous? Is, un, is unrighteousness anything that does not meet the righteous standard of God's law? Any violation, any, any 
slight deviation from the perfect law of God, is that not unrighteousness? Well, then nobody's getting into heaven because let me tell you, Christians and non-Christians are unrighteous because no one fulfills the righteous demands of God's law. We all fall short. So you're telling me that if you're unrighteous as a Christian, you're not going to heaven because it says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. Hey, if you have any unrighteousness in your life, you're not saved. Clearly, that can't be the case. Clearly, unless you're going to redefine unrighteousness to only certain sins. Hey, you can commit 50 sins and still be righteous. But if you commit that one, you become unrighteous. My thing, any sin in anyone's life makes us unrighteous. Therefore, no one goes to heaven. Now, look at the text. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Fornicators uh, fornicators and adulterers, that's all sexual immorality. And please note that sexual, sexual immorality, not just in action, but in lust and desire. You're telling me that there are people in your church who are so righteous that they never lust or have any sexual desire outside the way they're supposed to? Give me a break. Everyone probably does in some way, shape, or form. Idolaters, if idolatry is anything you put before God, not just an idol you make with your hand, but you can be an, an idolater in your heart between sexual immorality in the mind and in the heart and in the desires and idolatry in the mind and the heart and the desires. You've already wiped out uh, 99% of Christianity. Because we're all this in some way, shape, or form. He goes on, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. But here comes the good news. But, and such were some of you. Now, this is how it's preached. Hey, that's how you were. But when you became a Christian, you, we are no longer those things. As Christians, we no longer lust. We no longer covet. We're no longer idolaters. We are no longer these things because see, the gospel is about us being changed in a practical way, but that you know, that's not true. So how do we understand this? And such were some of you, but you are washed. Now that washing, we know that's clear. That's obvious. How am I washed? I'm washed in the blood of Christ. In salvation, all of that past sin is washed away. All my sins, though they be scarlet, now they're as white as snow. They have been covered by the blood of Christ, washed away, removed as far as the east is from the west, thrown into the deepest ocean. They are done. They're forgotten. They're paid for. All right, that makes perfect sense. Now, listen, uh, but ye are sanctified. You are sanctified like a completed act. How am I saying this is now clearly he's already acknowledged that our sanctification is not complete, that we're still being sanctified. Remember, there is a positional sanctification and there's a practical sanctification. So it's very true. No one who's unrighteous will get into heaven. So how do I get into heaven? I've been washed and I have been perfectly sanctified. How? In my position in Christ Jesus, I am, listen, perfectly clean completely set apart, declared to be righteous because of an imputed righteousness of Christ. I stand 100% saved because I am 100% righteous in my position. 
they go on to say, but you are justified. These are all completed acts. I have been washed. I have been sanctified. I have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. The reason that it says you were that is because I was that, but I'm no longer that positionally, practically, we are still many of those things in either thought, word, deed, or desire. But we preach it that, you, that you're never those things again. No, 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 no. We're those things constantly in some way, shape, or form. He's preaching this that, see, 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 you, but, I, but he's also acknowledged that you can be a Christian and enslaved. So I don't know how this works. How can I be a Christian and enslaved and go to heaven when this says I was some of that? So I guess I was that, but I could be that again and yet still be saved. It is all maddening. Were, past tense, but you were washed and you were sanctified. And the, the implication is now you are no longer these things. It's possible to have an enslaving sin and then come to a point where it's in the past. Now, wait a minute. So we were some of these things, but now we're not these things, but you could be enslaved in those things, yet be saved, but then you can come to a point where you're no longer those things. So I was, but then I've been completely set free. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified. So I'm no longer those things because if I am those things, I don't go to heaven, but somehow I can be these things yet go to heaven. But I can be these things and yet immediately stop doing these things. It is mind-boggling how utterly confusing and the doublespeak that is so prevalent in the evangelical church on these issues. In the past, that's our hope. Through Christ, we can break free from the bonds of enslaving sin. It can be done. All right, so in Christ... I can break through the bonds of enslaving sin. First, First Corinthians here, the passage that he's referencing, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, if you read it the way he, he initially read it, I can't be saved and be involved in an enslaved sin because I've been set free from it. But he wants to read that, that I can be set free. Not that, on one hand, he wants to read it that you have been completely set free so you can no longer be those things. But at the same time, he wants to read it saying that I can be those things. However, I can be completely set free from those things after my salvation. It is all confusing. But guess what? He's still not answered. If I have the power now in Christ to no longer be enslaved to sin, and now he's specific, he is mentioning specific sins. Why, the, why does that not apply to sin in general, where now I can be free from all sin in a general way? Either I'm free or not free. You got to make up your mind. You got to pick a side and stick with it. I'm, I'm, I can be completely free from sin. I can be sinless. Well, no, you can't be sinless. Then I'm not free. Well, I mean, you can't be free from all sin, but you can f- be free from that sin. So as long as I can be free of one sin, but still enslaved to 50 other sins, I'm okay. But you quote 1 Corinthians 6 as if this is speaking of a practical reality, that I was these things, but I'm no longer these things practically. So which is it? It can be done. 
And this class is all about how to do that. Now, um, let's talk about a definition. There's a lot of uh, debate in the psychological world about the definition of addiction. Um, the, the world has a really t- hard time defining it because the trend these days in the world is to try to define everything in terms of physiological, physical chemicals and all that kind of stuff. And that, that doesn't work because... Um, we'll stop right there because he's now going to try to define kind of addiction. So we're going to stop here at nine minutes and 16 seconds. And we'll back it up to probably about nine minutes is probably what we'll back it up to. And uh, there we go. We we didn't get very far. We only got nine minutes into it. And I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with Matthew 14? Are you sure you put this in the right podcast series? I think this should have been in law and gospel. This shouldn't be in uh, the Bible study exercise on fear, but it fits perfect. I think it fits. I I have to put it here because the text is supposedly Matthew 14. (laughs) So I don't know. Put it this way. If, if, if by the time we're done with this, he doesn't even deal with Matthew 14, we'll remove it. We'll move it over to law and gospel series. But, um, wow. I, I just, the double speak is maddening. You're free, but you're not free. You can be slave, but you're not. Hey, hey, no, remember, that's what you were. But I mean, you could still be that. But hey, you can stop being that. So I was that. And if I wa- and I'm changed, and if I'm not changed, I'm not saved. But I, I can literally be saved and not changed because I could be in an enslaved sin. But I don't really have to be in enslaved sin because it's, it's a voluntary thing. However, however... I, once I volunteer, I could get stuck and there's no way to get out, but there is a way to get out because clearly I have the power to get out because first Corinthians six says that I used to be that, but I'm not that even though I'm still that I, I look, you, we would need a chart. I mean, look, you think I'm joking. We literally need a chart. And what this chart would indicate is just endless contradiction, endless circular reasoning endless Christian doublespeak where we say these things and never bother to take them to their full, complete, logical conclusion. You're free from sin. You don't have to sin. All right, good. I can be perfect. No, 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 no. You can't be perfect. Well, then how am I free? You've been given supernatural power so that you can say yes to God and no to sin, but you can't do it perfectly. Well, wait a minute. If I can't do it perfectly, then that means there's a limit to the power. All right, you, 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 some will say you don't have a, an old nature, but you're still going to sin. Well, why am I sinning if I don't have an old nature? Well, you're going to have an old nature, but you still can say no to sin, but you're still going to sin. It's just, you listen to the Christian teaching on all of this stuff. No wonder people are like, you know what? I'm just going to do whatever I want and just not listen to you preachers because you preachers make absolutely no sense. I'm telling you, it makes absolutely no sense. Just try to follow it. It's constantly, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, but you really can't do it. And this is like, hey, you, you're completely set free. So any sin you're committing is a voluntary thing. I mean, but, I mean, you could be enslaved to it. But hey, remember 1 Corinthians 6, which says you were that, but you're not that now, but you really could still be that now. But this tells you, you can stop being that. <laughs> I don't. I, I, look, I can repeat it a hundred different ways. And if you're like, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. All right. 
I, I do apologize for losing my voice halfway through all of this. I don't know what happened, but um, there we go. There we go. There we go. So much. See how this fits with all of our, this fits with so much that we're working on. I just want to know how in the world Matthew 14 is the solution. to this. I am so scared on what he's going to do with Matthew 14. But we will get back to this some point this evening. We will. I'm going to, it may be later tonight, but I'm going to try my best to, to, to do at least another hour on this tonight because I want to get to the Matthew 14 part, right? All right, there we go. Your thoughts on all of that? Because I know you've heard countless sermons saying some of the same things he has said. Have you never struggled with just like, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then why is that true? You had to have struggled with this. Email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. New, I told you that was going to be wild. I told you it was going to be a bumpy road. I told you um, that was that was just crazy. That was, I just, I don't understand. I just don't understand. But there you have it. All right, I'm going to make sure we're good to go. All right, we're good to go. All right, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks to the one making uh, comments. I greatly appreciate it for listening to anyone else listening. Look forward to hearing from you as we try to figure out, well, what in the world this all means and how, what does this have to do with Matthew 14 and what does any of that have to do with fear and what does all of this have to do with law and gospel? Yeah. Just stay with me. By the time we get to the dramatic conclusion, I hope you're going to be like, wow, that was worth it. Or we could reach the dramatic conclusion going, that was a waste of time. So you'll have to wait and see how it's all going to end. And we'll find out hopefully soon. Thanks for listening. God bless.